Our scripture passage today is from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, hello again, everyone. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at our downtown campus, and I'm very glad uh, that you have decided to join us here uh, this morning. I know it probably took a little extra effort to get here this morning. There was ice on my windshield as well. Um, and so I, I appreciate the work that you've done to be engaged here with us. It does, uh, takes effort probably every Sunday to get here, right? I know it takes effort for me. In fact, since I started working here, Sundays have become very early mornings for me. I get here, used to be before the sun would rise, nowadays thanks to daylight savings time the sun's up, uh, but get here early to unlock the doors, uh, make final preparations for our services. Sometimes I try to get the coffee started before Charlie walks in. Uh, didn't happen this morning, that's all right though. Uh, but in light of my, you did, you did beat me here, but in light of my early morning Sunday commitments, uh, I, I've had to start making some adjustments to what I do on Saturday nights. And so I can't uh, stay out as late as I used to. I can't accept all the invitations uh, that I might like to accept. But one of the biggest adjustments for me personally uh, is that I've had to quit watching Saturday Night Live. Uh, now, I know that some of you might think, hey, that's no big deal. You're saying, Tyler, SNL hasn't been worth watching in years. Uh, but the thing is, I've loved the show for a long time and watching it live as it aired uh, was a tradition that I enjoyed for many, many years. So I still watch Saturday Night Live, just not uh, on Saturday night and not live. Uh, but a few years ago, SNL had me cracking up and they get me at, from time to time when they told the story of an artist, Cecilia Jimenez. Did you guys see this sketch, the Cecilia Jimenez sketch? It was based on a true story. Maybe you heard her story, maybe you saw the sketch, but what happened is that Jimenez, an untrained artist, attempted to restore a painting of Christ that hung in her church in the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Borgia, Spain. And so they did her, they had Kate McKinnon as Cecilia, it was fantastic. Uh, but the painting that Jimenez sought to repel, it was, it was titled Ecce Homo, which in Latin means behold the man, right? So Ecce behold, Homo the man. It's a painting of Christ depicted with his crown of thorns. And Jimenez attempted to restore the painting, which was originally composed directly on the wall of her church in the early 1900s. And so let's get a clearer photo. That's the original painting directly on the wall of her church, right? Hundreds of years old. And this was the result of her restoration effort. So she painted live right over the painting. This is what she accomplished. So it's not really A plus work. In fact, let's look at the two side by side. So again, there's the original and it had undergone some damage. 
Here's her final attempt. She attempted to restore it, and I think the results, I mean, it's just kind of a crime against art, you know, a crime against humanity. Um, and it cannot be denied, her attempt to restore the piece, it actually resulted in its destruction. And it earned her international infamy uh, with various news sources and bloggers and even SNL itself lampooning her efforts, right? All this attention came to a small little town, Borgia, Spain, because Cecilia Jimenez uh, destroyed something special. All this attention came her way because she ruined something that was precious. The eyes of the world turned on Borgia, Spain, because in Cecilia Jimenez's attempt to repair a one-of-a-kind work of art, she actually destroyed it. Because by adding to this particular work, she took away its beauty. And I think that's exactly what happened at a church in Galatia in about 50 AD. The church that meant there, a church that the Apostle Paul had helped plant, the Apostle Paul who we learned about last week, right, as we studied Acts, the church that he'd helped launch, they made a similar mistake. After Paul left them to plant more churches, they attempted to add to the gospel that they had received. I mean, sure, Paul and his associates had gathered them around a particular message. They'd been formed into a faith community, a church, in response to very specific news about who Jesus was and what that meant. That's what had brought them all together. But then Paul left, and some folks showed up who told them that the original message was missing something, and so they started adding to it. And when Paul heard what they had done, he became quite angry, and the result of his anger is what we have in our hands this morning, and it's what we're going to be studying today. This letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians 2,000 years ago. You see, this morning we're beginning an eight-week exploration of this historical text. We're going to take a quick pause in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts to dive deeper into Paul's letter to the Galatians, because in this letter, one of the earliest letters we have that the Apostle Paul wrote in our New Testament canon, we get to see what Paul upholds as central and critical to the gospel. In this letter, we get a glimpse into what Paul was preaching as he traveled the ancient world telling the good news about Jesus. In this letter, in which Paul seeks to correct a church that has ruined the gospel by adding to it, Paul outlines what's at the heart of his teaching. So we're going to take a pause from Acts to dive into this, and then we'll go back to Acts later in the fall. But here's what the letter of Galatians says in a nutshell. If you want to know right at the very top, here's what it says. Whenever we add to the gospel, we actually take away from it. Whenever we add to the gospel, we actually take away from it. And so that's why we've titled this series, No Other. Uh, It's because the book of Galatians teaches us that there is no other gospel other than the one that Paul taught. There's no other savior other than Jesus. There's no other way that we can relate rightly with God except through faith in Christ. That's what's at the heart of Paul's teaching. But I don't just want to tell you that. I want to show you and I want to set the groundwork for the rest of our series. So in the moments that we have together this morning, I'd love for us to gain some context into what's happening in Galatia. I'd love for us to see why Paul thought that what was happening was such a big problem. And then I'd love for us to get an idea of what this ancient text might be saying to us today. So if you're ready for all that, would you join me in Galatians chapter 1? Galatians 1 is on page 972 of our community Bibles. Galatians 1, uh, Asher already read it so well, but we're going to dive back in. There Paul writes this. He says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul opens this big letter by saying this, uh, hey friends, it's me, Paul. You know, remember uh, Paul who used to persecute, persecute those who followed Jesus? Paul who used to imprison those who would be part of this way? Paul who used to, even in spite of my zeal against the church, this Paul who was just so mad at the church, that same Paul, remember that Paul who was made an apostle, not because of anything I did or because of any shrewd, land, shrewd plan any human leader concocted, but because Jesus appeared to me in person, right? The same Paul, hi friends, it's me, Paul. Grace and peace to you from God who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. So Paul opens this letter by giving a bit of a biography. Hi, friends, it's me, Paul, not an apostle from man or through man, but through Christ. And then also by reminding the Galatian church of what brought them together, right? The gospel, this good news about who Jesus truly is. Paul says, hey, 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 don't forget about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. Even here in his greeting to the Galatians, Paul tries to remind this drifting church of the good news that was once at the center of their community. Paul says, I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says, I greet you in the name of Jesus, who died for us so that we might be free from the power of sin and free to live life as God designed it here, now, today, and forevermore. Paul opens his letter by reminding the Galatians of the gospel that he taught them. Now, throughout this eight-week series, uh, we're going to be speaking about the gospel a whole lot, right? We're going to be talking about this phrase, the gospel. And so because the gospel is central to our study of the book of Galatians, and because it's, thank you, uh, and because this gospel is is central to our lives as faithful followers of Christ, we thought, our all-campus teaching team thought it would be helpful to offer a church-wide definition of the gospel. We wanted our entire church across five campuses to be on the same page in this regard. So we talked about it for a while. Here's what we came up with. Let, it, let me know how we did. Uh, we said the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which, if you trust it, saves you from sin, and gives you new life now and for eternity. So our definition across all five campuses this morning, they're hearing this in Leewood, Olathe, Brookside, Shawnee Mission. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which, if you trust it, saves you from sin and gives you new life now and for eternity. Right? The gospel is an incredible announcement that God has taken loving action on humanity's behalf. God sent himself as a perfect sacrifice for his people. Jesus came to earth and died for human sin and rose again, defeating death. And those who trust him and those who place their faith in him, they're freed from guilt, punishment, and condemnation of sin and are granted eternal life and joy. The gospel is good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust it, saves you from sin and gives you new life now and for eternity. This is what Paul taught. This is what Peter taught. James, John, all the early apostles taught in the first century. And this is what we hope we continue to teach here in Kansas City today. The gospel, it's good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust it, saves you from sin and gives you new life now and for eternity, which means that the gospel, first and foremost, the gospel is good news, not good advice. First and foremost, the gospel is good news about something that someone else has done, and it is not primarily advice for you to incorporate into your own life. 
But you see, what was happening here in Galatia, what can happen still today, is that some folks showed up in the church, and they brought some good advice with them. They brought some advice with them, but they started to say, hey, this is what the gospel really is. They said, hey, 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 we know what you heard from Paul. We know that Paul teaches salvation through faith in Jesus, and that's great and all, but let us tell you something that you're missing. Hey, we know that Paul said it's all about Jesus and his death and resurrection, and sure, sure, Jesus is important, but there's something else that you have to do to be right with God. There's just one small thing you've forgotten about. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to have this, this operation performed that we've been doing for centuries as a sign of our relationship with God. It's great that you have faith in Jesus. And it's wonderful that you're now worshiping our God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, we never thought we'd see the day when someone like you would worship our God. This is, that's great and all, but we're telling you, you've got to get this surgery, right? That's just the way it is. Your faith is great, but this surgery is going to seal the deal. And Paul hears about this. And he gets word that folks have showed up and are adding to his teaching in the Galatian work, and they're commanding that people who want to follow Jesus take additional action to be right with God. That's the heart of what makes him mad. They're commanding this extra surgery on top of it all. And man, Paul just gets so frustrated. And so he writes, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I actually, I love how the NIV translators uh, work through the same passage. They translate this same verse by saying this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I love that. Paul says, hey, some folks have come in and are adding to the gospel and you're embracing their teaching. No, no, no. I can't believe that you're doing that. You're taking their advice and abandoning the good news. And he goes on, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, contrary to that good news that it's about something Jesus did that now opens up access for you to have relationship with God. Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Right? This is Paul's way of saying, this is a big deal. Don't let anyone, not me, not an angel, not your mama, not your cousin, don't let anyone try to convince you of something contrary to the gospel we taught. And why, Paul? Why, why is this such a big deal? Why shouldn't we embrace the advice of those who come into our community? What's the real problem here? Well, Paul would say it's because, first and foremost, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's news about what some, good news about something someone else has done, not about something that you do. So, right? so it's news, but it's also uh, the gospel is freedom, not slavery. Right? Freedom not slavery. And this becomes clear in the remaining verses of Galatians chapter 1, and this will be a big theme as we continue our study of this book. Paul says there's people that have restored what, distorted what relationship with God looks like, and they've made it primarily about rule following instead of primarily about faith in God's goodness. And Paul says, I know what that system is all about. I lived in that system. I was very zealous in my rule keeping, and I thought that that earned me some kind of righteousness with the Lord. Paul says it clearly in the text when he says, hey, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. 
how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul says, hey, I know what it's like to be a zealous rule keeper. I was one, and I was one of the best. I was advancing beyond everyone else in my class. I was like number one. I've been part of a religious system where you had to do this but not that, and you could go here but not there, and you could talk with them but not with them. Paul says, I've been there, I've done that. That's what I was raised in, that's what I was trained in, that was my whole life. But then, Paul says, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. So Paul says, I was living this life where I thought it was all about my rule keeping, all about my ability to be more excellent than those around me. But then he who knew me before I was born, God in heaven, right? He was pleased to reveal his son to me. And he showed me that Jesus was his son. And I was taken aback. I was totally undone. I changed my mind about what it meant to follow God. He says, I realized I was, I was wrong. And God did all this, Paul said. God brought about transformation in my life. He showed me his son in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul says, God made himself known to me so that I might talk about God even to the very people I used to look down on, even to the people that I used to think I was better than because I kept the rules better than they did, right? Paul says that God, who knew me before I was born, who set me apart and called me by his grace, he, he revealed his son to me so that I might preach among the Gentiles and share him with the very people that I used to condemn for not being as zealous as I was, Paul said, I lived that life of rule keeping to earn God's favor, and it was empty. It was slavery. So why now, Galatian church, would you invite that kind of rule keeping back into your faith community? Why now would you abandon the beautiful freedom of the gospel that I shared with you, this very freedom that allowed you now to worship a God that before you were kind of kept out from worshiping? Why, why now would you turn away from the good news about what someone else has done for you and turn again towards rules that you have to follow yourself? Why would you abandon the gospel of Jesus for the rules of humans? Why would you trade the freedom Christ offers for slavery to religious checklists? Now, before we go any further, I think we've got to pause here. We need to think a little bit about the question that Paul posed then, and we have to think about what it means for us now, because the fact is the Galatian church might have been one of the first communities of Jesus' followers to start adding to the gospel, but they certainly weren't the last. I mean, in the centuries since Paul wrote this letter, many, many faith communities have added their own rules to the good news about Jesus, and they've said, hey, if you want to follow Jesus faithfully, you both need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and also do X, Y, or Z, right? They've added something to the gospel. They've said, hey, uh, faith in Jesus means both trusting the message about who Jesus is and, you know, voting a certain way. Faith in Jesus means trusting the message about who Jesus says he is and intending only churches of our denomination, right? Faith in Jesus means trusting the message about who Jesus says he is and parenting a certain way or praying a certain way or listening only to certain kinds of music or dressing only in denim skirts or whatever it might be, right? And there's no, and to be clear, I'm not trying to pick on like good, wise things that communities try to establish to breed certain values within their communities. It's not that. It's when people add things and say, this is what you do in order to be acceptable to God. That's what faith communities have done again and again and again. They've said at the heart of it, it means trusting this message about Jesus and adding this other rule to it. And the Galatians certainly might have been the first, but they were not the last. And for centuries, religious communities have been adding rules upon rules upon rules upon what it means to be right with God. But why? 
Why has this been a perennial temptation within communities of faith? Why have we time and time again abandoned the gospel of Jesus, which at its heart is good news about something someone else has done, and instead decided to place our trust and adherence to human rules? Why does this happen? I can think of two main reasons. Uh, first, comfort and confidence. Right? Comfort um, and confidence. Simply put, there is comfort in following rules, and following rules can give you confidence. Uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, comfort. Let's talk about comfort first. Imagine you were one of the Jewish people in the first century living in Galatia, and you heard about a group of folks who claimed to worship your God, even though they hadn't performed the ceremonial surgery that your family had been undergoing for centuries. That would make you uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Right? You'd feel like something was missing. Even if you were convinced that Jesus was who he says he was, and even if you had been persuaded that his death and resurrection changed things, that now there was more open access to God through this faith in God himself, through God's Son, even if you had been intellectually persuaded of some of that change, uh, you'd probably say, yeah, that, that's true in all, and Jesus is who he says he is, but you should probably go ahead and get this surgery just to be safe, right? Because there's comfort in that. There's the, the tradition. It's what you've always done. And that's how rule following works. Certain rules, they get established in religious communities. They become kind of the norm of what it means to be part of this group. Certain behaviors are upheld as ideal. And then, you know, it's said like, hey, as a church, you know, we support these causes or we speak this way about these issues. And people start to embrace these rules and they become the norm. But over time, they just get subtly added to the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. And so the community, it morphs to now, it's like, well, following Jesus means this plus this. And so when someone comes along who acts differently or thinks differently, or when someone comes along and has a hard time keeping that rule that's been made the norm, the community starts to question if that person really belongs. They wonder, hey, are they really one of us? Because there's comfort in rule keeping. There's comfort in being around a lot of folks who do and say and wear and react in the same way that you do. So there's comfort in rule keeping and there's also confidence in rule keeping. Uh, when you adhere to a rule, particularly if the rule is a difficult rule, you become confident in your self-control, in your persistence, in your tenacity, in your own ability to do something that's good. When you keep a rule, particularly a rule that others have a hard time keeping, you start to believe, hey, I'm doing well. You know, I'm crushing it. I'm on top of things. I'm making this happen all by myself. There, there's confidence in rule keeping. And when religious communities keep rules together, they can start to become proud and sometimes, if they're not careful, a little arrogant about their ability to be better than or more righteous than or more holy than, moral than, fill in the blank, than those around them. And I think the comfort and confidence that rule keeping offers is why those early Jewish followers of Jesus or why those early Jew Jewish people that saw followers of Jesus and knew they were worshiping the same God, I think that's why they came in and snuck into this community and tried to persuade them that there was something else that they needed to do to be right with God. I think it's because they were comfortable with the rules that they had known for centuries and they were confident in their religious superiority over these new converts because they had kept the rules themselves. And don't miss that it is often those who seem religiously mature or who feel religiously mature, who have been around church for a while, who come in and add extra rules to what the gospel means. This isn't frequently something that folks who are new to the faith do on their own. This particular temptation to add rules to the gospel is something, it's a temptation that usually exists among those who have been around communities of faith for a while. That was true in Paul's time, and it's true in ours. So now to be clear, when I'm talking about 
following rules and adding rules to the gospel being something we should be suspicious of. I just want to say this. Um, I'm, when I'm talking about adding rules to the gospel, I'm talking about something quite different than obeying what Jesus instructed. And that's going to come a little later in our study of Galatians, but I just want to make that clear off the top. So to be very clear, following Jesus has implications for how we live. Uh, trusting that Jesus is who he says he is means there are some things we should stop doing and some things we should start doing in all of our lives. And trust me, uh, we are going to talk about that in more detail throughout the series because Paul does. We're going to talk about how following Jesus brings remarkable freedom, even as it brings real responsibility. That's coming, right? So we're not saying this morning there's no cost in following Jesus. We're simply saying that thinking that somehow the gospel plus a rule is what makes you right with God is something that Paul is so, so frustrated with that causes him to write one of his most fiery letters to a church that he just helped start. We have to be careful of turning what God designed as a free gift into something that's earned. We've got to remind ourselves that when we add anything to the gospel, we actually take away from it. That the gospel at its heart is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if we trust it, saves us from sin and gives us new life now and for eternity. It's not advice for us to follow, and it's not more slavery. It's freedom, and it's an announcement of what God has done for us. See, the problem is when we turn the gospel into advice for us, when we make it about what we do instead of what Christ has done, we wind up exchanging him for an it. This is the heart of the problem that Paul says. We wind up exchanging him, Jesus, for an it, and this becomes most clear if we look back at verse 6. So let's turn there in our moments that remain. Paul writes this there. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. I want us to notice in these last few moments together what specifically shocks Paul about the conduct of the Galatian church. Paul says they are deserting the one who called them. They're deserting Jesus. They're deserting a person, a him. And they're doing it in preference for a different gospel, a, a message and it. And I think this is what happens whenever we trust rules instead of Christ. We're exchanging a relationship for rules. We're exchanging connection with the God who made us and loves us for conformity. We're exchanging a him, a person, a God who's acted on our behalf, a God who loves us for an id, a system, a rule, an identity marker, conformity to certain rules. We're saying uh, that we don't want him, the person that loves us. We want instead these rules that are ultimately unable to heal us and unable to change us because rules have never been able to do that. That's work the law could never accomplish. And Paul in his letter to Galatians says, hey, at the very heart of it, what bothers me the most is that you, you've traded your freedom for slavery, you've taken this good advice over good news, and you've exchanged a relationship that you have with the God who loves you, a relationship you have with Jesus, a, a him, a, a personal connection, you've exchanged him for an it. And Paul says this has got to change, and then he writes the rest of the letter that we're going to be studying to outline what needs to change, what needs to be different, how, what the gospel actually means, and how that can apply more to our lives. But this morning, as is, is we're wrapping up, uh, just a few final thoughts. I don't know about you, but everywhere I turn, I keep running into articles and documentaries heralding the virtues of minimalism. 
Do you see this everywhere you go? Uh, it is everywhere right now. Minimalism, the idea of living le with less than like 100 possessions uh, is everywhere. The idea of having an uncluttered space, of creating a capsule wardrobe, right, where everything matches and you only have like 20 things. Uh, there, it's getting liked on social media. It's shared in news. Just every magazine I open or something, minimalism, minimalism, minimalism. It is all the rage. And so one podcast uh, titled The Minimalist Podcast is hosted by these two guys, Joshua Fields Milborn and Ryan Nicodemus. And their website claims that Josh and Ryan have helped over 20 million people live more meaningful lives by exposing them to the virtues and simplicity of minimalism. And so this week, and I was wondering, hey, maybe is minimalism for me? Um, so I'm perusing their online content, and I was struck. It was funny. In the middle of studying this paragraph, I was struck by a paragraph in the main article on their page entitled, What is Minimalism? And they said this. They said, minimalism is a tool that can assist you in finding freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from worry, freedom from overwhelm, freedom from guilt, freedom from depression, freedom from the trappings of the consumer culture. We've built our lives around real freedom. And I chuckled a bit when I read it um, because while it can't be denied that many of us would benefit uh, from cleaning out our closets or scaling back on some of the excess stuff we've allowed to accumulate in our spaces, uh, Josh and Ryan's promise of real freedom through fewer possessions, it seemed a bit inflated to me. Because I've known plenty of people with cluttered closets, right, uh, and messy desks and full garages that are free from fear, that are free from worry, that are free from guilt, and they didn't get it by ruthlessly purging their storage unit or selling their second car. Uh, but how did they get there? What did they do instead? Instead of cleaning out their closet, instead of cleaning out their basement, I think these people that I know have cleaned up their view of the gospel. And they've worked to purge the extra rules that sincere people told them they had to follow to be right with God. And they've embraced instead the simple news that Paul preached. They've trusted the good news of Jesus being who he says he is. They've recognized that the fact that Jesus said he was God and came to earth and died for sin and then rose again to prove that he who he was, they've said, that message makes all the difference in my life. And it's been in that simple message, that message without extras added in, that message without giving any advice along, but saying, no, it's news of what God has done for you. It's been that message that has brought real freedom. It's in that simple message that they've found true joy. And so today, as we just begin our journey in Galatians, and as we're walking where we're going to be in our next seven weeks, as we're talking about this chapter or this book in our community groups across our campuses, I think we'd be really helped by asking this question, hey, we're diving into a, a book about cleaning up our view of the gospel. What do I need to clean up in my view of the gospel? What do I need to clean up in my view of what it means to be right with God? Hey, where have I added rules that aren't necessarily, you know, kind of rules that are obedience to Christ, but it's just those extra rules that I think, gosh, people have to do this to be right with God. I can't see how anyone who wouldn't keep this rule would ever be acceptable to God. Where do I need to clean that out of my view? Where do I need to realize there's rules I've been holding myself to that take away from the beauty of the message that God accepts me in Christ as I am through faith in him and sure wants to change me over time, but man, I don't have to do anything to earn my acceptability to God. Where do I need to clean that up in my view of the gospel? What have I allowed to clutter the beautiful message of what God in Christ has done for me. Is there a gospel that I've embraced that really is no gospel at all? Is there a place where I've embraced a rule or a law or some kind of little behavioral habit over the one who died for me where I've embraced an it instead of a him? 
this is the journey we're going to be on together. This would be a great question to take to God in prayer this week. And right now we're going to take it to prayer together now. So would you join me in prayer? Lord, we're excited uh, for this new journey together. And I feel even in this moment uh, chastened by Paul's teaching. We are so quick to think that our adherence to certain rules, religious rules, whatever kind of rules, Lord, are what can earn us our status before you, what can make us right with you. But God, that is no gospel at all. The gospel is first and foremost good news about what you have done. And so God, remind us of that. Uh, let us be comforted by the fact that based on nothing we've done, you died for us. Based on nothing that we could perform, uh, you loved us and invited us into relationship with you. That that's at the heart of what it means to follow you. And whenever we add anything else, Lord, we, we miss. We don't add to the beauty of the gospel. We take away from it. And so God, help us in this journey to realize places where we need to clean up our view of what it means to follow you. We ask for your help in this this morning. Um, and it's in your son's powerful name we pray. Amen.